1: Commons People, this week...
0: I think that we need to make sure that David Davis stays at the negotiating table.
1: David Davis stays, but for how long?
0: I'm injecting some honesty about where we are in the Labour Party.
1: Some honesty in politics?
0: I don't think sacking the people who are working today to solve the problem is going to
1: solve the problem. Don't worry, Chris Grayling's on the case. All of this and more in Commons People. And welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast, with me, Owen Bennett, and this week I am joined by Mr. Paul War. Hello. Hello. And Mr. Ned Simons. How are you, Ned? Not bad. How are you? Oh, thank you. Good. Good. Busy. Just want to check. Busy because of Mr. David Davis, oh. who as um, I mean, I'm currently halfway up the hill as you been marching us up and down along, but I mean, we're recording this uh, quarter to two on Thursday afternoon, and we think he's not resigning, however... By quarter past two on Thursday afternoon. It could have all changed, couldn't it, Paul? This is David Davis. We're talking about. Without we should go too much to the back and forth, this all comes down to the backstop. And this is the plan that comes into place if the UK and the EU haven't agreed, or haven't got into place, the customs arrangements for the Brexit deal. This is not what happens in case of a no deal, listener. I know it's confusing. But in case of a no deal, this is all out the window. Is that right? It's just kinda like there's two versions of no deal now. There's no deal because we haven't reached a deal yet, and there's no deal because we're not even talking anymore. So now we're gonna talk about no deal because we haven't reached a deal yet. Paul. What the hell is going on? You
2: gotta feel sorry for the ordinary uh, punter, haven't you? Specifically you gotta feel sorry for the ordinary leave voter who thinks that they've voted to leave leave the EU. There's millions of them, 17 million. Uh, they thought that they were voting to leave the EU, uh, and they are going to leave the EU next March 29th. But we're going to stay in the EU really for at least 21 months in this transition period, and then after that, um, the whole point of this thing, the backstop that everyone keeps talking about, um, is that in case we can't come to any agreement really on about the way forward, there is at least a bare minimum. Which means that even after twenty twenty one, we'll be able to sort of uh, keep the the lorries flowing and everything else. Well, it's only to the end of twenty twenty one. It's not after twenty
1: twenty one. They expect yep. it to last yep. a year. There's a lot. Yep. Of, that word "expects" in the document that's come out just before we record this is doing an awful lot of work, isn't it? It is. We expect this to be done by 20, uh, December twenty twenty one.
2: And that, that's a brilliant sort of fudge, isn't it? It's great. And Brussels is all about fudge. There's more fudge here. But to me, what's interesting is that it's, it's about the power that David Davis now wields. You know, a lot of the Eurosceptic MPs have been thinking, God, he's swallowed so much and he's really almost gone native. And what's he doing there? Is he really sticking up for us? And actually, all the way along, he said, look, stick with me. Trust me. Um, you know, I'm going to make sure that we deliver a Brexit that you recognise um and the interesting about this is oh yeah he hasn't got exactly what he wants but he certainly by pushing hard publicly has shown the power that he still retains because if everyone knows that if if he'd walked Theresa May would have been in trouble and and that's really him displaying the kind of leverage he says the PM should use against against Brussels, he, he's actually using it against her. He's making threats and saying, look, you know, there is serious consequence if you don't listen to me. And he's saying to her, you should be saying that to Brussels too. That's the great irony of it. But the problem with this all, though, isn't it, Ned, is that actually this is just another
1: can kick down the road. Because this is a draft proposal they put forward to the EU for the temporary backstop. It's got in there, we expect to be done by 2021. Okay, fine, you've got that. But it also has in there that they want to be able to sign and implement their own trade deal. UK can sign and implement its own trade deals and carry them through, whilst at the same time carrying out the trade deal of the EU, which is a customs union. Brussels aren't going aren't gonna to agree to that, are they?
0: No, I think the word expects in there also has to be looked at with what the EU would accept. I mean, the Irish um, Prime Minister has said that he won't accept any backstop that has a fixed end date. So by putting expected to end by the end of 2021, that's also because they probably realise the EU's already said, we won't accept any backstop that has an end date. So whether they actually will get any agreement on it, you know, the British government's finally been agreed, like you say, kick the can down the road a bit and it might be dead on arrival once it, it gets shows, in br- it gets shows, to Brussels.
2: It shows it's all about, Diplomacy is all about words at the end of the day mm. but it is about actions too. And this is a diplomatic fudge to get the Tory party united ahead of next week when it got a really important vote on the EU withdrawal bill and they want all their side united. They know that Labour are divided on some of that bill and so the whole point for the PM is that she could fly off to the G7 summit in Canada having sorted this problem. But as I said earlier, it's it's been interesting to show to see David Davis just wield the clout that he's got because he is a bit of a loner. There's no question. That's why a lot of people in the in the Tory Eurosceptic ERG group, the European Research Group, don't always trust him because he's he and even his fellow cabinet ministers don't always, always trust him because he does behave as if he's an individual, and he will carry a few people with him, but he'll keep close to his chest what he really, really thinks until he, n- he feels he needs to wield that power. It's worth remembering, during the referendum campaign itself,
1: he wasn't used by the official campaign no. vote leave. He, w- he was used a couple of times by the unofficial Grassroots Out campaign, but even then he kept himself quite a distance f- from it all, really. So when he was made Brexit Secretary, I think some people were a bit surprised by that. And Dominic Cummings, who was the campaign director of Vote Leave, was called him thick as mints.
2: Yeah. Well, the thing about Davis is, though, he's proved all, a lot of his critics wrong by getting that job in the first place and sticking with it. And now you can say after months of feeling like he's been marginalised and he's obviously been rather irritated that number 10, I've got this guy, Ollie Robbins, who's the civil servant who's been taking over, taking the lead on a lot of Brexit negotiation. This was today Davis saying, I'm putting my foot down, look. The politicians matter here. I represent a certain constituency. There's no point in me doing this job unless you give me a bit more of what I want. And I think personally, that word "expects," although it is a diplomatic word, you, I can imagine that being on the splash in the Daily Mail: England expects dot 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 with all the connotations and Nelson I've done that. That, that, that that's I've done it before that I don't, not sure, but the word yeah. "expects" really matters now.
1: Um, Jeremy Corbyn did a quite a good job on PMQs this week, shock horror. Of, um, I mean, it wasn't difficult. He was just pointing out to Theresa May all the things she said she'd have, but we haven't got yet, which is basically a position on Brexit, really. And um, this white paper, which is apparently going to make it all become clear, um, was supposed to be published, well we thought it be published, before the June summit. It doesn't look like that's going to happen now. Um, there's no agreement on customs, no agreement on this. No, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to believe, isn't it? That we are. I mean, I remember when this all started and the Prime Minister's official spokesman saying to us, don't worry we will have agreement and we all the, the all the capitals of all the states in the eu will have all signed this off and agreed it before we leave it's just nowhere near is it it's
2: unbelievable it we'll have to be near ready by obviously by october but They the it's can't, can't kick on. it beyond october that's for sure what happens then, then if we get to october and there's no and there's
1: no signed the <laughs> trade deal
0: i mean god knows <laughs> to be honest, that's, that's not particularly cutting insight, is it? This is not really connected to your question, but I thought it was a nice, um, kind of as an aside, um, in how, how Theresa May hasn't been able to decide anything. She was supposed to attend um, the opening of a play about D-Day last night, <laughs> which is a nice sort of metaphor for, for her Brexit plan going well, but I had to pull out because it was all uh, going yeah. to shit in trouble, cabinet. the cabinet. And she's been doing yeah.
2: all these private talks in her, her Commons exactly. office, not in number 10, it's quite interesting. The other little uh, little subplot here is that uh, robbie gibb who's the prime minister's director of communications the and Strategy. Bee Gees. not a bg star yeah. but m- even more important in number yeah. ten um, is the one who's obviously tried to keep the show on the road for the Prime Minister. He's himself a, a, basically a committed Eurosceptic. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of MPs see him as the conscience of Brexit in number 10. And it's interesting that today, in the middle of this whole sort of drama and the melodrama about David Davis, will he quit, won't, won't he quit, he was the one sent to the Dexu department after the Prime Minister had had a chat with... Um, with David Davis privately, he was the one sent in, and there was a very heated exchange in the building. I understand in which he basically read the riot act and said, "Look, you've 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 gone so far, you can't go any further." Uh, and the, the the subplot is that Stuart Jackson, who is David Davis's chief of staff, um, and Robbie Gibb have known each other for a very long time, more than thirty odd years, because. They did exactly the same university course at Royal Holloway in London. And the course was economics and public administration. And so they know each other incredibly well. It just shows that in politics, those little connections from many years ago, whether it's Sajid Javid knowing Tim Montgomery and and all the other people like Robert Halfon, all those university connections at some point actually do kick in.
1: The word you're looking for there is establishment, I believe. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on now, shall we, uh, to the Labour Party. Because um, the Tories aren't the only one with problems, he says, with everyone says all the time, like it's some sort of amazing insight. Um, Labour <laughs> has introduced a new Brexit policy this week. They kind of have. It's a plan to tie the UK to the EU single market after Brexit. It's a bid to uh, unite German MPs in the Commons. They've unveiled an amendment to a future Brexit related legislation uh, that would ensure the UK shares minimum standards, rights, and protections with the EU. It also calls for shared UK EU institutions, although they haven't actually explained what that was, Um, it would mean the UK having to follow Brussels' rules potentially including freedom movement of people. Uh, Obviously it didn't go down well with Labour because this is Labour. Here's uh, Keir Starmer on the Today programme talking about it.
0: I'm injecting some honesty about where we are in the Labour Party. Chukramuna was on a moment ago saying that what you needed was cross-party amendments that command support on both sides of the House. He knows... And others who are critical on this know that this amendment does not command that support in their own party. I've been talking to colleagues for the last two or three weeks to gauge the views across our party. I wish I could report that we had complete unity on all amendments, but we're not in that position. So you're saying you think you'd... And Keir there
1: was mentioning Chukra Amuna. Let's have a listen to him.
0: There isn't actually been a big change. Um, There's been a welcome change in tone, I think. But substantially, the Labour Party's policy is the same, which is it seeks full access to the single market in the same way as the government. It wishes in certain respects to continue to participate in EU agencies and apply some of its standards, like the government. Uh, But it is not where I and a number of other colleagues would like it to be, which is for us to stay in Europe's economic area. So
1: um, this sort of seething melodrama in the Labour Party... (laughs) So the basic premise is this, is that Labour don't like the Labour front bench don't like the EEA amendment so yes. they don't want the Norway model. Yes. And that amendment is coming before MP's, we think Tuesday or Wednesday, mm-hmm. right? So they put forward their own amendment, which is not coming before MP's Tuesday or Wednesday. They're gonna put it on a bill in the f- sometime in the future. Some moving on from yeah. that. Which is basically saying the same thing. Chukramuna doesn't like it, because Chukramuna Ned, <laughs> he didn't put it forward himself or what?
0: I mean, so the, the main problem that the, the kind of really pro-Remain, pro-EEA Labour MPs have is they think that the Labour Front Bench Amendment is basically the same position as the government has. And the reason, I, you know, Keir Starman today was saying, we won't, we're won't we not going to vote whip Labour MPs to vote for the EEA because Labour's so split, we won't win the vote. But people like Amunna say, no, we would win the vote because there's enough Tory rebels like Anna Soubry and so on to make up any Labour MPs or would vote against it. I think important to this is really that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and so on probably don't really want to be part of the single market because they see that really is about immigration and their un- understanding is, you know, the Brexit vote was largely about immigration. If you're part of the single market, you've got to have free movement of people. Isn't that the more so, that Caroline Flint? Wasn't Jeremy Corbyn well, more... State 80 kind of uh, Sure I think c- club I, in the analysis I think of why Labour wouldn't be so kind of pushed you know from the front saying let's stay in a single market as opposed to the customs union discussion is the connection to immigration and I don't know if this argument that you know we can't win the vote on the EEA so, we're not going to bother trying to whip our MPs to back it on the amendment. I think the idea they're not doing that just because of Labour splits might be a little bit disingenuous.
2: Well, th- what's interesting is that Keir Starmer has had a really important role in all of this in trying to. You know, bridge the divide mm. within Labour and trying to heal those div- those divisions. Again, just as the Tories are looking forward next week to uniting, so is Labour, and that's really what Starmer's all about. After he published his his new formulation, his tweak of Labour policy, which is the softest Brexit they've had so far, it's worth not forgetting that. Mm. Really, really important they what they've moving, done. Moving closer and yeah. closer, aren't they? Too. So, to although to it's not what the, a lot of the Remainer yeah. ultras really want, it is a significant step towards a softer Brexit. And Starmer, yes, that I understand had a series of private meetings with many, many Labour MPs from different bits of the country, different wings of the party. And there was one particular meeting where, of, of MPs in leave areas where people like Stephen Kinnock had turned up and were kind of hoping that they could push the EA amendment. And there was a massive pushback from people like um, uh, Caroline Flint and Wayne David as well, who's writing for the Huff Post as well, uh, and to express that that constituency of Labour MPs who are in leave areas You say, actually, migration really matters to my voters. And if you go down the EA route, then really we we, we risk risk losing those votes. But there is also a
1: constituency of Labour MPs in leave areas who want to stay in the single market. So there is, even with that, it's difficult, isn't it, to say, oh, all leave area MPs think this. so... No, that's it, why yeah. it was interesting.
2: He had a meeting specifically of leave area MPs and within that meeting yeah. there was a division. And it, uh, and to him, to Starmer, that confirmed why his policy was the best way forward because it's at least one way of uniting them. I mean, a lot of <coughs> time and effort is spent by people
1: like me. Nothing else to do. Trying to get my head around Labour's Brexit position. But why am I bothering Ned? Because they're not in government. They're not in government. They're not going to be in charge of negotiations. Their job, really is to scrutinise what the government's doing, not to offer a coherent alternative, right? Their job is to say, look, Theresa May, you said two years ago we'd have as close trade as possible and a frictionless thing. You know,
0: where are we with that, right? Yeah, I mean, you could say that by publishing this amendment by kind of as we've been saying incrementally becoming more and more soft that in itself is pushing the government and that the kind of outcome of that is scrutinising government policies that does have an impact on what the government does but mostly as you said it's about politics and about internal party management
2: but you have to have an alternative if you're just putting yourself forward as an alternative government it's completely irresponsible it's not in the national interest and I think it's bad politics not to draft your own alternative and if that alternative does look a bit like the government but actually they would argue it doesn't because it It involves a customs union and a single market. And in a way, Labour have been allowed to enter this territory by Theresa May vacating it. Liam Fox at the beginning of the year with really, really significant move persuaded Theresa May not to say that the UK should be part of a single market or a customs union. And Labour has filled that gap. And, you know, if there is an imminent general election, who knows, with David Davis, the resignation swirling around that yet again reminded people that you, you've you got a hung parliament. It's, it's relatively easy to get a new general election or call a general election if there's a crisis. And if you're going to have a general election, you've got to have a policy.
1: I saw, uh, I saw a 22 committee this week, the meeting of the Tory about benchers when the uh, chief whip went in to say that they're going to do this e withdrawal bill over two days now instead of one marathon 12 hour session. And he came out and he turned to his aide and went, Right, okay, off to the DUP now. And it was just that was just. So such a crystallised, wonderful version of how government works. Got the Tories on the side, oh, now off to the DUP. <laughs> I thought yeah. it was wonderful. Um, let's move on, shall we? Uh, because Let's move on to Chris Grayling. Um, Chris Grayling has announced an inquiry into him, well, not into himself, but into whether train companies are at a fault for the timetable chaos affecting thousands of passengers. Trains continue to be delayed following the biggest train timetable change in decades amid mass cancellations on Northern and govia Thameslink Railway. In Parliament, Grayling said he will not hold back in taking action against the industry if they are not meeting their contractual obligations. But he faced criticism from both sides of the House, with Labour MPs calling on him to resign. Here is Nicholas Soames first, followed by Rachel Reeves.
0: I suggest to him, ask him if he is aware that the rail service to East Grinstead, which he has always taken an interest in, has finally fallen over completely that trains from Haywards Heath, Wivelsfield and Burgess Hill are shorter and more overcrowded, that people's private lives are being destroyed, and this whole thing is an absolute disaster and must be put right. Can I just say, frankly, to the Secretary of State, passengers have lost faith in him. Isn't it about time he yeah. step aside and allow someone else to do the job who can fix this problem? So, we,
1: we, I mean, HuffPage, we've done a lot of work on it this week. Um, there was a really good thing where a lot of the local papers got together and based the same headline, which is, you know, enough is enough. Um, Grayling is just seen. I mean, why is he so bad, Ned? <laughs> like, you? that's not me being
0: like, offensive. That is. I mean, everything he's ever done has always
1: been overturned,
0: right? Yeah, but he obviously doesn't agree and doesn't care because, he, like you said, he's criticised so much for every cabinet position he has. He doesn't ever seem really that ruffled by it, though. You know, you never see him looking particularly harangued, even when he was getting kind of quite you know, got after by Tory MPs during that statement in the Commons about the trains. It wasn't just Labour MPs, like you mentioned. It was a lot of backbench Tories. You had Michael Fallon basically telling him to, to get a grip, the former Defence Secretary. But he never really comes across looking like he's that kind of bothered by he it in like public. A, he at he looks
2: like a, a punched punch bag, doesn't it? <laughs> he? He really does. I mean, in, in both politically and, and sort of physically, he looks like just, all right, I'm going to stand here. You just have a <laughs> go at me. I'm going to absorb all this stuff and then I'm going to survive at the end of it. Because he, to be fair to him, what he was saying does have some sort of rationality. He was basically saying, look, the government has a responsibility through network rail, and that's the state-owned bit of this, that have really cocked up, let's be honest. They have, they delayed all of their crucial works, which had a knock-on effect. The private sector have cocked up because they knew this was coming down the track, knew that network rail had delayed, and they didn't do anything, didn't raise any alarm about it, and so didn't tell ministers. The, the People that really suffer are the poor people that we've done lots on this week, which is people, you know being told that they've missed a job opportunity or they're they're late for an interview or they're getting their pay docked or their kids are not getting to school on time. So there the people are really suffering. So and I think it was quite smart of Grayling not to make it sound like he was the victim.
0: But, but also I don't think he particularly looked like he, his kind of any you know action he's going to take I don't think many voters are going to believe that he's on their side in this. Well they're having a review aren't they? Well, ex- it's the classic yes uh, uh, yeah, minister exactly. response to everything. Let's and, have a review. Yeah you, know? You, know, you could have a situation where this would be happening and the minister could come across at least PR as if they have kind of taken control of it and really going to sort it out. I don't think that's particularly the, the message that came across this week.
1: Speaking as uh, two Southerners and Paul is basing the Dr. Southerner. <laughs> you know, we, we, I played the group there from from, uh, from Nicholas <laughs> Soames. Um, we talked about Michael Fallon, you know, two MPs in the South of England. It's only because it started to really affect passengers in the South now that the media parliament are taking notice this has been going on in the north well, or is that just a well, kind of slightly yeah i, I don't
0: know if i agree with that actually i mean if you look at what's happening on southern rail which the line between brighton and london which is you know perhaps the most kind of southern thing there could be that's been going on for a long time so i i think the fact now it's affected more of the country has made it a bigger issue because there are now more mps particularly in the north that is affecting their constituents so i don't think in this situation it's actually, a, it's actually a way, way it's don't
2: forget, I think actually it matters more that it's happened in the North and in the Midlands, because, and in, in, in Leeds, because don't forget, politically, yeah. all those seats in the South are safe. Yeah, you no, can have loads of Michael Fallons getting up and, and, and Grant Shapps is attacking you, but you'll still have your Tory majority. If you're... Pudsey, if you're someone like Stuart Andrew, if you're somewhere on the fringes of Lancashire in those key swing marginal seats, uh, you know you've got Ben Wallace, who's a minister with a seat up there. If your seats are in, um, under threat because your local constituents literally can't get to work, then you're in trouble. Yeah.
0: Whereas the southern line, which is kind of runs where I grew up, which is Sussex, Surrey, they're not Tories aren't losing those seats even if the trains stop working entirely.
2: What I do hope off the back of this though would be, wouldn't it be great if there was some national anger about? the lack and the appalling state of bus services nas- nationally there's always yeah. a big outright Andrew
1: Adonis go on. there's always
2: <laughs> an, no that's the point Andrew Adonis loves trains yeah. whereas actually buses is what a lot of people particularly from poorer backgrounds rely on and, and have been decimated in the rural areas and in the fringes of a lot of big cities people rely on them and yet there's been no national outcry about that and what was it going to take for MPs to stand up for three hours to harangue the transport minister about that? Maybe, but maybe, this will wake people up a bit about the, the whole state of transport.
1: Well, speaking of things to wake you up, this
2: week's quiz. Oh, Great. Hey, <laughs>
1: hey that's right, wasn't it? Uh, Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy <laughs> Hunt, he says carefully, is now the longest-serving health secretary since the NHS was founded in 1948. I want you to name me every help... No. Okay. <laughs> You've done that before. <laughs> have I? Okay. Well, we're now going to do um, longest people in jobs. What are the two okay. options? There's no, no, yeah, the Longest
2: happy. serving HuffPost political someone. Yeah. Ned. <laughs> Ned, right? <laughs> but, you know, so...
1: Right it's here for who 75 was years. the longest yeah. serving... Since 1945, who was the longest serving Foreign Secretary? Uh, uh, I, you can have a stab in the dark, or I can give you some options. Options, options are always okay. good. Ernie Bevin, Jeffrey Howe, or Douglas Heard? Great names. Three great um, names there. I'd be tempted by Ernie Bevin, I'm but. I'm going to say Douglas Hurd. Ooh, Douglas Hurd. Just because. Uh,
2: the reason I'm tempted by Ernie Bevin. Oh, what are you thinking about Bevin, Paul? Go on. Is because Nye Bevin a was the longest serving health secretary until Hunt. Yes. And that is because Nye Bevin. No, was he wasn't actually. He was longest serving Labour. But Labour. Yeah, Labour. But he was, but he was yeah. there for a long time, like he six was. years or something. Yeah. So, and that was bevin overlap with him i'm gonna go for bevin because he overlapped at the same time because he's got the same name as bevin no because he was in that same <laughs> 45, 50 45
1: 51 government he was paul and he oh. did serve for 45 to 51 however he's not the longest serving ah. It is mr jeffrey howe oh. from 89 2236 days
0: that's a, long that's a mess time.
1: Up, uh, then douglas Hurd 2078 and then ernie bevin 2052 who is the longest-serving defence secretary? And I'm saying secretary when it was created in 1964 uh, before not a lot of not minister. Not okay. So, was it Jeff Hoon? I know. No. F- I just love saying that. Was it Dennis Healy or was it Peter Carrington? Hoon, Healy, Carrington. Uh, um, Sessions. Go on. <laughs> uh,
0: Carrington.
2: I'm going to say Carrington purely because it's brilliant trivia. He was 99 yesterday and he's the... Oldest uh-huh. I think he's the oldest Tory peer. I think he is.
1: Right. Unless of course you're listening on Friday, in which case he was ninety nine two days ago.
2: Sure.
0: Yes. Oh, what yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> the answer is Dennis Healy. Mm. Sixty four to seventy. Uh, Jeff Hoon was ninety nine to Jeff Hoon's the second longest. Really? And then Carrington uh, Whatever. Yeah. Wow. Then Carrington, 74 Longest serving transport secretary since two thousand and two. Uh, Before then it was all divided uh, up all right, Um was it um was it? Alistair Darling, was it Patrick McLaughlin or was it Ruth Kelly?
0: Oh. Um, Again, Ma- <laughs> I laughed at I'm the name. Ruth
2: Kelly. Kelly. Uh, <laughs>
0: I, know. I think McLaughlin. Oh.
2: What was the first one? Uh, Alistair Darling. Darling. I'm going for Darling. Yes, Darling. It, no. um, darling, darling, darling. It was Alistair Darling. Um,
1: 226 with 1,438 days, just 28 days more than Patrick McLaughlin, 2012, 2016. Oh, Ruth so Kelly. Did it with 434 days. There's no prizes of second place, Ned. Don't get me. And (laughs) finally, Education Secretary. Since 1964, who was the longest serving? Was it Kenneth Baker? Was it Mr. Michael Gove? Or was it Keith Joseph?
2: Ooh. Yeah. (sighs) Mm. Tricky. Mm. I'm going to say Kenneth Baker. Kenneth Baker. Because there's lots of... He's remembered. He's remembered Um. fondly. Who Baker. are the other two again? Uh,
0: Gove. Yeah. You, have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Keith Joseph. Oh, I don't know. Keith Joseph.
1: Yeah, it was Keith Joseph. Oh, great. Uh, a- th- I knew that. wasn't a guess. And then Gove was 10 to 14. And then Baker was 86 to 89. So and he did yeah. a lot
2: more than the others. Yeah, well, a lot in more than In that short
1: period. Come on, Gove did a lot. Mm. <laughs> Find out more in about April next year. Anyway, oh, well,
2: uh, more? So or? <laughs> thank
0: you. What? Find out things you already knew. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Find out things you've read. Elsewhere. Find out more if you're GCSE student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> satire, isn't it? From Paul there it's getting in. Uh, that's it in it this week. That's it. Is there it's anything else to talk it's about? A whirlwind of a week. There's been a lot. I mean, there was a lot this week we could have talked about. because We was a lot about abortion. um We could have talked a lot. There's slow yeah, stuff. Yeah, There was uh, Dominic Cummings. There was all this sort of mad stuff going on this week. Uh, Corbyn was good at PMQs, wasn't he? yeah he was and he chose Brexit again was the right decision because you just
2: keep plugging away at government divisions you know and he actually ad-libbed rather well he
1: threw he Heathrow he all. Justin Greening's huge yeah and
2: Labour what are Labour going to do are they really are they bluffing about saying the tests have been met we'll see we'll see this is good
0: this is a bit of the podcast where you remember all the stuff we forgot (laughs) to talk about
2: (laughs) it's
1: podcast uncut it's (laughs) podcast uncut Uh, yeah thanks everyone for listening and we will uh, you'll hear from us next week goodbye